0: at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.
1: It's a sort of persistent loss of wages, which causes things like loss of marriage, people not living with their kids anymore, disintegration of communities with all of the things in those communities, whether it's churches or union halls or society, just friendship that used to be there. And those are the things that cause people to lose meaning or, if you like, to lose hope in their lives.
0: Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. I think about deaths of despair any time inequality comes to my mind. It is, perhaps, the most extreme outcome to arise out of the inequalities in American society. It also challenges many assumptions of both conservatives and progressives. Deaths of despair afflict the white working-class population, or rather those without a college degree. It's an odd demographic because Something really needs to be done, even though many of those afflicted don't want government assistance. Now, many longtime listeners will recognize the phrase, deaths of despair, from some past episodes. It's come up in passing, but I have never done a deep dive to discuss the concept. So I reached out to Angus Deaton to discuss this topic in greater depth. He co-wrote the book Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism with Anne Case. Angus is a recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2015 and is among the most celebrated scholars in economics and public policy. We discuss the reasons for the deaths of despair and possible solutions, but before we start, I want to give a few shout-outs. To begin with, I want to give a shout-out to the IMF podcast. I listened to a lot of interviews with Angus Deedon to prepare, and I thought their interview really stood out. I also want to recognize my first real review on Apple Podcasts from a year ago, back in January 2021. A curious African-American wrote, Only heard one podcast so far but picked up some insights. Keep the deeper insights coming. I'll keep listening. I really appreciate feedback like this. So feel free to write a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app, and I'll try to read it out loud. You can also send me an email to jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, this is my conversation with Angus Deaton. Angus Daden, welcome to The Democracy Paradox.
1: Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here.
0: Well, Angus, your book uses quite a bit of data and analysis to explain what you refer to as deaths of despair. Now, rather than offering a very clinical, economic-based definition, I'd like to start out with more of an anecdotal account. Can you paint a picture of what life is like for a person who's facing the challenges that you describe in the book?
1: Well, I mean, you can think of a, a specific one kind of death of despair as someone who dies with a needle in their arm from some opioid overdose. And that paints one image. Of the other sort of paradigmatic one is someone who's incredibly depressed and they go home and hang themselves in the garage. And in fact, the suicide comparison is an important one because Durkheim, who was the first sociologist, really, and the first person to write about suicide to any extent, was very much the sort of person who talked about the sort of environment that we find very helpful for thinking about contemporary America for less educated and, you know, the background which could lead you into a place where you're ready to destroy yourself, either, you know, accidentally, and, you know, the accident is always unclear because, as someone said, it may not have meant to die from the drug overdose, but it did mean to put the needle in their arm. And so, you know, the intentionality is almost a little complicated, but... I think it was my co-author, um, and Case, who invented the term deaths of despair, and it was just that these deaths that we're looking at, which from alcoholic liver disease, from opioid overdoses, and from suicide were rising very rapidly, and none of them were like from an infectious disease like COVID or from heart attacks or things we're familiar with. They weren't things that the medical profession could do anything about, and there were just more things that you do to yourself either rapidly with a gun or slowly with a ball.
0: Now, you identify like a lot of real problems as causes of this phenomenon. We can talk about health care. We can talk about the loss of working class jobs. But at the end of the day, I get the sense that it's not just the problems themselves, but the perceived loss of hope that's almost more important. Michael Sundell in his recent book has written about your work, Something more than material deprivation was inciting the despair, something distinctive to the plight of people struggling to make their way in a meritocratic society without the credentials it honors and rewards. Is this phenomenon caused more by the perceptions or the real-world economic and social factors?
1: Well, both, really. I mean, hope is pretty central to this thing. But, you know, you lose your job. Most people don't go kill themselves. So... We think of the economy, the jobs, as being this sort of fuel, but it's a long way back in the causal chain, as it were. And it's this sort of persistent loss of wages, which causes things like loss of marriage, people not living with their kids anymore, disintegration of communities with all of the things in those communities, whether it's churches or union halls or society, just friendship that used to be there. And those are the things that cause people to lose meaning or, if you like, lose hope in their lives. Not so much just, I lost my job, except that, you know, it's true, but it's the disintegration of a way of life for less educated Americans that lies behind all of this hopelessness or this meaninglessness.
0: Now, is this unique to our period in history, or is this something that we've seen at other times in the world during times of economic transformation?
1: I think we've seen things like this before. It's a little hard to, you know, we didn't have the data <laughs> in lot of historical episodes. But one example I keep going back to were the handloom weavers in Britain at the time of the Industrial Revolution. You know, so basically people had invented a way of, you know, weaving cloth that didn't require the techniques that people were using. And those people lived in their cottages. They lived in the rural countryside. It was compatible with growing food for yourself. While you were weaving the cloth, there was a stockpot bubbling on the stove. There was a church in the village. All of this sort of stuff. And then you got about a 50-year period when handloom weavers stopped existing. And it wasn't that they died or committed suicide, though they may have done, for all I know. But you know, moving to the city for these jobs destroyed that life. As one famous writer wrote, the stockpot was replaced by the teapot. You know, (laughs) people were drinking sugar instead of the much healthier stock. You know, when Manchester was first developed, there were no churches there, you know, because the churches were out in the countryside. There were no public toilets. You know, there weren't places to bury the dead. I mean, it, it was just sort of a mess. And it was the destruction of the way of life that had existed for a long time, and slowly for sure. But it took 50 years before the new began to dominate what they had, had before.
0: What I find interesting, though, is that it's not the people who are finding a new community, who are leaving one place to join another, that are facing these deaths of despair. It's the people who are left behind. For instance, you find a difference based on race, where it's non-Hispanic whites. But a big part of the reason that I've heard you mention is that Hispanics oftentimes are immigrant communities who have a different sense of hope. So why is it that Immigrants are not necessarily susceptible when they're facing serious challenges and the breakdown or the loss, rather, of their community because it's a community that they've left.
1: Well, I'm an immigrant myself, so I can tell you one of these things. I mean, there is a tendency, to, you know, to compare yourself with what it was like, you know, before you left. And I can tell you that you know, Princeton University is a lot better place to work than where it was in England and before that, but. Immigrants everywhere do pretty well. They often do better than the natives, and they almost inevitably do a lot better than the people they left behind where they came from. And that's because you have to be healthy, and you have to have some get-up and go, and all that sort of thing to be an immigrant. So immigrants are a very selected um, population, and often, you know, very well selected, and often do very well. There are other stories about you know there being a much stronger sense of community in the Hispanic community, but. You know, when we first wrote, there were no deaths of despair in those communities. That's not true anymore, unfortunately. So you can begin to see the tick up, especially of drug deaths among Hispanic and Black communities. Suicides are very low, but they're increasing. So you begin to see this pathology in these other communities too. This is all before COVID, of course. And you can't really talk about Blacks and Hispanics without... You know, recognizing the fact that they were much worse affected by COVID than almost anyone else except for Native Americans.
0: Now, I found it interesting that in your analysis of the pandemic, that you found that deaths of despair did not necessarily see a significant rise. In your recent paper, you wrote, while it was true that COVID was much more likely to kill those without a college degree, the relative mortality rates were the same as before the pandemic. It was bad in the pandemic, but it was bad before. A stunning measure of the mortality consequences of not having the degree, even in normal times.
1: Well, let me just make sure we got that straight. I mean, it was worse during the pandemic for everybody. So, everybody's, all these groups, their mortality rate went up. And it was the mortality rate went up for more with people without a BK than it did for people with a BK. It's just the ratio of the two mortality rates stood in about the same ratios had done before the pandemic, which we find very surprising. It's not at all what we would have expected to happen.
0: What did you see during the Great Recession? Not much.
1: <laughs> I mean, which is why the story that, you know, used to be told that suicides were linked to the business cycle. So when people lost jobs, that was when suicides went out. I think that used to be true, but it was not true during the Great Recession, and it seems to have broken down around that time. And some of it is because these other deaths were sort of taking over. But I think the phrase we tend to use is deaths of despair were rising before the Great Recession, and it rose during the Great Recession, and they rose after the Great Recession. So it's very hard you look at this discontinuity in economic activity where you know unemployment more than double. You get this impulse, which you might think would cause a lot of this, but it didn't. And the pandemic, it may be too early to know for sure, and the data come with a lag, and you know, old death statistics are reported locally, and then they have to be brought to the center and analyzed and all the rest of it. But it's not really clear what happened to deaths of despair during the pandemic. And suicides were actually down in 2020 compared with 2019. Drug overdoses rose very th- rapidly for the first nine months of 2020, but they were rising rapidly before the pandemic happened. So you can't really pin that um, on the pandemic. I don't think we know about alcohol, but there are, of course, stories about quarantines and all the rest of it, and people, you know, buying in a lot of liquor. But we don't know how much of that is just replacing what we would have drunk in bars and so on. It became important because the Trump administration at some point was arguing against lockdown on the grounds that deaths of despair would rise very rapidly if there were lockdowns, and that does not seem to have been the case.
0: Do you think it's because deaths of despair require a long-term sense that people are looking more into the future than they're looking at the present moment?
1: Maybe. uh, I'm not sure. One of the analogies that we thought of you know, I watched at the beginning of the pandemic Queen giving a sort of Queen speech about if we all pull together we'll be okay. And it was an echo of her similar speech, her first radio speech that she'd made at the beginning of the Second World War. And this wartime analogy, you know, if we all pull in this together, we'll be okay. It may have been very strong for some people, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. There's a lot of evidence that suicides go down during wartime because people sort of pull together. But of course Applying solidarity to the description of the United States in 2020 is a real stretch. So I don't think we'd want to push that too far. But it certainly took people out of themselves, perhaps. I mean, there was something else to worry about, a real external threat, as opposed to the internal threat that my life has got to help.
0: So the big difference between people who suffer deaths of despair versus those who do not seems to be... Having a four year college degree, having a bachelor's degree. Why does that make such a substantial difference?
1: Well, that's a really good question. And of course, you know, what you try to do about this depends a lot on what you think about that question. And, you know, at the limit, you'd say, well, everybody has to have a four year college degree. <laughs> and so we ought to make college free for everybody and everybody get a four year degree and there'll be no more nests of despair. But I would suggest that there's something in the college education like a vaccine or something, which protects you against death. So if you go take those classes, you're sort of inoculated and these deaths of despair. And I don't think we really think that. We think much more along the lines of Michael Sandel's book, which you talked about already, which is we constructed a sort of two-class society in which the educated elite is doing very well and has done well for the last 50 years. Whereas the less educated people have seen their lives so sort of come apart. So again, it's a little bit like the handloom weavers, you know, as opposed to the owners of the factories in, in Manchester who are doing um, very well. And there are a lot of quite uncomfortable parallels, I think, um, between that, one of which is, you know, the enormous amount of wealth that's been created by the American stock market over the last, what, 20 years or so, and especially during the you know,
0: now, most people still don't have a college degree in the United States.
1: That's right. Even if you look at adults, I mean, kids obviously don't, but if you take people over 25, it's about a third of college degree. The people without a college degree are not some minority that are discriminated against, they're the majority.
0: As more younger people start to go to college and start having college degrees, are we seeing that the four year college degree continues to be the difference maker? Or does its effect become a little bit less important?
1: It doesn't. There's not been a huge increase very recently. So, no, I don't think we see that diminishing. It's a bit like in the labor market where the college premium, mm-hmm. the percentage difference between earnings with a BA and without a BA, seems to have continued to rise. And you might have thought, well, with more people getting a BA, you know, increasing supply and price could have But that doesn't seem to have happened which means that it seems to be an insatiably increasing demand for
0: people with a college degree. So, Angus, I assume that a large part of the reason why a college degree matters so much is because of the types of work that you're able to obtain, the fact you're able to make more money, do more meaningful work. Is it simply the fact that there aren't as many high-quality jobs for people without a college degree, or is it something more than that?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a question as to why do you really need a college degree to get some of these jobs? And, and that's a very actively researched question. And I think the answer to that seems to be sort of no, that a lot of employers just put that college degree requirement on it because it's easy and it winnows down the applicants in you know, a direction that clearly makes some sense. Probably winnows out a lot of people who could do these jobs very effectively. So that's one thing. The second thing is it's clear that, you know, we've known for a long time that the skill bias technical progress, the automation um, has replaced a lot of jobs that could be done without a tremendous amount of education. And so those people have really suffered a lot from that. People we'll talk about globalization. It's obviously somewhat of an argument as to whether it was China that did it or whether it was the robots that did it. I think most of us think it was the robots were bigger than China, simply because if you look at manufacturing output in the U.S., it hasn't gone down. It's just being made by way fewer people. But then there's the question as to whether, you know, we're helping this to happen by having policies that make it worse. And things like tax treatment of an investment. You know, if we subsidize firms who buy robots, put people out of work, that doesn't seem like a very good idea, even to people who believe in markets. And then of course with the whole healthcare issue. We have this insane healthcare system that's insanely expensive and is funded by killing jobs.
0: So I want to put a pin in the uh healthcare discussion because that does make up a big part of the book, makes up a big part of your articles. But to go a little bit deeper into the idea of the college education, Tom Piketty's written a lot about it recently, the idea of how politics has changed with the rise of tertiary education. He writes in his forthcoming book, with the rise of tertiary education, things have become more complicated. Left parties, which used to be viewed as pro poor, have increasingly become viewed as parties defending primarily the winners of the higher education game rather than the less off. Do you feel that not just the policies, but the way that we even engage in politics has left a large number of people that are suffering deaths of despair? outside the political conversation? I think so. They're
1: not outside of it, but they're in an unusual position of it, which is they've become allied with the rich, essentially, through the Republican Party. So you have you know, this less educated group who has nowhere to go except this sort of populist republic. It's very hard to believe that coalition will last forever because the people who run large corporations are well-educated And, you know, they're not naturally well represented by populists. They're well represented by people who lobby for them in Washington and get policies that don't make them rich. But, yeah, and I I think what Piketty described is very true in Britain, for instance, that I know reasonably well, that, you know, Clement Attlee's cabinet in 1945 had seven men, of course they were all men, um, who started their lives at the coalface. And so you had, you know, genuine ex-workers. Who were helping run the country. And some of them, like the two Bevins, Nye Bevan and Ernest Bevan, you know, were incredibly successful politicians. I mean, Bevan was a working man. He basically founded NATO and stood up to Joe Stalin and so on. So, you know, very, very successful politician by any standard of merit. And those people are not represented anymore because the Labour Party, and as Piggity says, is uh, representing this sort of educated cosmopolitan elite. You know, there's a wonderful sentence in George Packer's relatively new book, you know, where he talks about a day in which Bill Clinton and I think Bill Gates and the March Center are sitting together and Clinton is announcing that China has joined the World Trade Organization and this is gonna make the Chinese fabulously rich, it's gonna make us rich, and there's a whole new politics in which no one needs to suffer anymore. And as Becker (laughs) comments, he said, that's the day that you can see the rise of Donald Trump. So that that coalition is clearly problematic. And in the, the new paper, which I think you have, you can see this, you know, in 1976, life expectancy and the share of Republicans in the presidential election were very strongly positively correlated. By
0: 2016 and 2020, it's very strongly negatively correlated so that, you know, the sick, are voting for
1: Republicans. It used to be the rich and healthy who were
0: voting for Republicans. Now, Piketty's talking about a phenomenon that's happening in lots of different Western countries. He even has a chapter in this new book coming out that compares the United States, Britain, and France. And he does a lot of that in his recent book, Capital and Ideology, too, that came out last year. Yeah, i read that. Yeah. So your account kind of deaths of despair really refers to itself as an American phenomenon. Yes. Has Europe begun to face a similar crisis yet?
1: Well, that, that's a question which we're spending quite a lot of time thinking about. So, you know, one country where the mortality rate from drugs is as high as it is in the United States is Scotland, where I was born and grew up. It's not as much opioids as meth of one sort or another. But if you read the literature on that, As to why, you know, why does Glasgow do so badly when other decaying cities, not very far south of that, Manchester and Liverpool, for instance, were sort of doing okay. And I saw a paper the other day which tabulated what the differences in deaths were, and they're exactly deaths of despair. So in Glasgow, people are dying from alcohol, they're dying from suicide, and they're dying from drugs in a way that's just not true in Liverpool and Manchester. So, you know, there's another place. Scotland's an interesting case, too, because there's a huge democratic deficit in Scotland, too. You know, Scotland, for most of the last 30 years, has been ruled by a political party that's basically not represented to Scotland at all, which is one of the reasons, too, that the Scottish National Party has become much more powerful during the same period. And so that's the place that you get something closest, I think, to the American thing. In England, the deaths of despair are increasing, suicides have been rising, but again, it's mostly drugs. And there's a drug problem throughout Europe, especially associated with fentanyl, which is very easily and cheaply made and very powerful and very easily transportable. But it's only really England and Scotland and a little bit in Canada, which in Canada is something like a reflection of the US, you know, sort of along the border and so on, where you see anything that really looks like the same. There are no deaths of despair in France or in Germany, as far as we can see. So that's one of the reasons why Anne and I in the book spent so much time talking about the healthcare system, because as you say, and as Piketty says, you know, these changing coalitions of the educated elite versus the old workers are common throughout Europe, and not just France and Germany, but also Scandinavia and elsewhere. And, you know, automation is a problem everywhere. Globalization is a problem everywhere. But it can be different in different places. The Germans did very well because they could manufacture cars that the Chinese liked. And so they had a fabulous trade with China and German cars. But it didn't lead to this despair. And I think there are two leading candidates for that. One is there's much better welfare systems in Europe than there is in the United States. So that there's protection against joblessness Maybe against hopelessness, we'll have to tell. You know, if you again you look in Britain, the sort of widening of wage inequality is there too, but it doesn't get through to family income because it's netted out by the welfare system, unlike the US. So it could be that. It could also be this ridiculous healthcare system we have in the US, which is forcing companies to outsource jobs that used to be within the company to the gig economy, essentially, where the jobs are not very good, where people may not have health insurance at all, where the wages are not very good, and where there's no sense of meaning or future prospects. So it's sort of a myth, obviously, that the janitors get to be the CEO if they're smart enough. But it has happened. <laughs> and you're not going to be made CEO of Google if Google doesn't hire any janitors anymore. You know, there's been a real separation in the labor market. So the mobility of less educated people seems to have changed. So then the geographical mobility has broken down too. You know, in the old days, if you were in some part of America that wasn't doing very well, you know, get on the Greyhound bus and go to New York or San Francisco or somewhere. And now that's basically impossible because it costs too much to live there. So there's sort of no entry. So these upward paths, which seem to still exist in other countries, um, seem to have been choked off here. And we think of that as one of the major drivers of the disaster.
0: I find it interesting how the book is about deaths. So it's easy to think about healthcare as being the solution, the idea that, well, the people just need better healthcare system. Well, that's true. It It is. Yeah. (laughs) But You think of healthcare as more of a systemic problem throughout the entire economy. You're right. We will argue that the industry is a cancer at the heart of the economy, one that has widely metastasized, bringing down wages, destroying good jobs, and making it harder and harder for state and federal governments to afford what their constituents need. Can you talk a little bit more about how healthcare system affects the wider economy? Well, the first
1: bit of wisdom on this is the obvious one, but it just costs too much, right? And that money has to come from somewhere else. So, you know, if you're spending one dollar and five on healthcare as to suppose, to one dollar and ten, you know, you have an enormous amount of stuff that you can't have because you're spending it on X-ray machines, MRI scanners, proton beam things, incredibly expensive hospitals, all the rest of it. So if we choose to have that, we can't have good schools and we can't have good roads and we can't have infrastructure and so This is all being sucked up into that. Now, of course, you have to talk about the details of that happen. But if you just think of a big heap of stuff that's the economy, if you take a big chunk of it away and sequester it, then you're going to lose some of that other stuff because you can't have everything. There's a budget constraint. One estimate is that it's costing about a trillion dollars a year. And that we could have the same services as they have in even Switzerland, which is very expensive. And, you know, a trillion dollars a year, we're so used to these trillions floating around anymore. But, I mean, that trillion dollars a year is just a waste. I mean, it's not what it costs. It costs, what, four times that? But that trillion dollars a year would pay for the whole U.S. military with a big chunk of change left over. So we think of the military as being a huge suck hole in the economy. But this is way, way worse. So that's just the broad outlines of it. And if you get into the details, I mean, Alan Blyner wrote a very good book about, you know, the financial crisis and so on. At the end of the book, he talks about the prospects ahead. And he looks at what U.S. budget deficits are going to look like looking ahead. This is before COVID and before any of that. So that, you know, everything that's strangling Washington <laughs> and that's polarizing all, all these fights, is coming from an enormous rising cost of healthcare, much of which is paid for by the government. But then the second part of it is how you fund this, and you know how you organize it, and you know. So a lot of time we spend talking the book is about how you know loading this up on employment is a sort of devilishly clever way of both hiding it from people, so people don't realize they're paying for this; they think their employers are paying for it. You know, health care doesn't cost me anything. Princeton University pays for it. But, you know, we know that it has to come from somewhere. and It has to come out of the firm's wage bill somehow. They don't care whether you get it to take home and go on holiday with it or whether they buy health care for you. And so, you know, we talked to one CEO who talked about, you know, his health care people, human resources coming in and saying, well, here's our budget for next year. And we said, what? <laughs> the health care items gone up 40%. They said, sorry, you know, that's what they say. Nothing we can do about it. They say, well, we can't spend it. You know, we'll upset the whole business model of the firm if, if it costs that much. And so what they do is they say, let's reduce our employment. You know, these people could be brought in from the Ram Jam cleaning company or something. They could be brought in from the transport services or something. And so. You know That's been a big downward force on jobs and on wages among the people who still have jobs.
0: I think the key, though, is that it doesn't come out of employers. It comes out of employers who provide good jobs. The employers who are providing poor jobs, part-time work, that are providing jobs as part of the gig economy, right. they're not paying for health care. They're letting people join the Obamacare system. They're letting people join Medicare. They're avoiding taking on these large healthcare costs themselves. Well, they don't care. They don't care what it's spent on, which, of course, people are not seeing because they don't get those wages. Yeah, but I think that one of the points that you kind of hint at is that when the employer is providing good jobs and when the employer isn't outsourcing some of this work, they're treating their employees very differently. Than somebody who's outsourcing those jobs. I I know that during the pandemic, people who actually were providing those type of jobs, were oftentimes providing employees short-term loans. They're looking at their employees very differently. When you're outsourcing those jobs, it's very difficult to treat employees the same way. So it's more than just that healthcare is outsourcing some of the jobs. I mean, it changes the way that those employees, even if the person's still a janitor, they're being treated very differently depending on who they're working for. It
1: takes the meaning out of life. You know, when I was a kid in Scotland, if you got a job working for a big firm, you know, that was wonderful. And a lot of these people were not getting very high-class jobs. You know? There were still mailrooms in those days that were working in the mail room. but it was a start in life. And it opened up opportunities that you might or might not be able to take. And you belong in that firm. So it raised your status. It raised everything. And what you say is exactly right. You don't get invited to the holiday party anymore. You know, that in some ways encapsulates the difference. You're not in the family anymore. And you don't get the benefits that you get of belonging to the family.
0: So now that we're talking about healthcare, it's difficult to talk about the American healthcare system without referring to the opioid epidemic that happened, especially with all of the deaths that happened there. And it's impossible not to describe those as deaths of despair. How did opioids exacerbate the phenomenon that you describe as the deaths of despair? Well,
1: there's a lot of dispute about this, which is sort of going on right now. And I think, you know, for a long time, that the attitude on the right was, you're not counting this right, that these less educated people are doing just fine. If you put the benefits in, calculating the CPI correctly, if you calculate prices, right? And if we do the calculations, you know, and Heritage is likely happy to do this all the time. We discovered that these people are doing just fine. So when we came along and said, oh, these people are dying in droves, it's a little hard to fake your death. And so, you know, it became harder to maintain that everything was okay. Now, a secondary line of defense that we currently see is people saying, well, it was just the opioid epidemic. It was just a few really bad companies that came in here and addicted these people, killed them off. And if we can fix that, there's nothing wrong with American capitalism. So we say, okay, those guys behaved abominably. You know, this was greed out of control. You were allowing people to kill people for money. And what's worse, there was a huge political side to this, too. Some of
0: people who were not paid off, it's not
1: corrupt in that sense, but certainly blocked the enforcement by the Drug Enforcement Agency and other people at, at high levels of politics, which... We're sort of enablers for these drug companies. So you've got this horrible, horrible mess with this. But the argument we like to make is that opioid epidemics don't just happen by themselves. I mean, they happen in places where there's a lot of distress. Now the opioid companies themselves will tell you all they were doing was relieving pain. But why was pain rising so rapidly? Pain to us is part of despair. And you don't see this rapid rise in pain in other countries. So there was a pre-existing rise in pain. But also these historical opioid epidemics happened in places where there was a lot of distress. In China, in the 19th century, during the Opium War, you know, the place was coming apart. The emperor was losing control. And so there was a lot of social decay and a lot of problems before these bastards from Scotland came along and made it a whole lot worse. <laughs> by sort of forcing them to eat opium. And in America, the last great epidemic of heroin was post the Civil War. There's another famous episode in the Vietnam War where Vietnam vets, or not vets then, they were Vietnam soldiers serving in Vietnam who were using drugs at astonishingly high rates. And yet they came home <laughs> and the addiction just vanished. So it was sort of like at least as much to do with the environment in which people live as it was to do with the stimulus that was coming from a niatrogenic drug epidemic, which of course it was. You know, the healthcare system did not cover itself in glory. That's a gross understatement. You know, if you look at Europe, they have opioids too. I mean, you get oxycontin if you've had a hip replaced, um, but they don't send you home with a thousand pills or a hundred pills or even 20 pills. So there's been very much more careful control. And a lot of that, I think, is to do with the way politics is run in this country, a combination of drug pushers and bad politics.
0: Is it the way politics is run, or is it the economics of our healthcare system that encourage that?
1: I think it's both. I mean, I don't think there would have been an opioid epidemic without, you know, Congress needing to fund itself as it does. And so a lot of people who were representing constituents that, you know, were suffering from this, you know, blocked the investigation.
0: Now, both parties today condemn the corporations that were involved in the opioid epidemic, even had the Trump administration looking for ways to be able to alleviate it while they were in office. I don't want to get into the policies. We could debate if they were effective or not, but none of the Republicans today are talking about making significant changes to the healthcare system. Nobody's talking about single payer that's on the right. Yet, a lot of the people that are suffering deaths of despair are voting for Republicans. That's right. Why do you think... You're you're
1: the, you're the political science guy. I mean, I, I think you have to be a little bit careful about this. I mean, people don't just vote on a single issue. You know, politicians build coalitions and... A lot of politicians are getting money from the healthcare industry. And it's not just Republicans. It's not as if Janet Yellen and CeCe Rouse and Joe Biden himself don't know what needs to be done and they don't need Bernie Sanders to tell them. But you know, there's a lot of Democrats who are taking a lot of money from the healthcare system too. And if you're trying to run Washington with a minority of essentially zero, it's not very hard for healthcare to defend itself because it only has to pick off a couple of Democrats, um, many of whom live in districts where there's not much else going on in healthcare. The other thing that makes them very powerful is, you know, every single congressional district has a hospital in it. You know, and I remember a couple of years ago when they were trying to deal with surprise medical bills, the person who blocked or one of the key players in blocking the legislation <laughs> was Donna Shalala. congresswoman in florida you know who has big hospitals in her constituency because a lot of old people there and these hospitals are helping fund her it's not hard to explain why they don't get reined in
0: but at the same time during the tea party movement it wasn't just that people that were lower educated were voting for republicans but wanting universal health care. I mean, during the Tea Party movement, a lot of the people going to the Tea Party rallies upset by health care reform through Obamacare, upset by changes in the system, oftentimes were these very people who are oftentimes suffering from deaths of despair. Do you see a path for reform within the United States on health care in the future? Do you see a path where people get to a point that they demand systemic change at some moment?
1: It was what we thought might be a silver lining of the pandemic. That doesn't seem to happen so far. But come back to what I said before. This is disguised from people, right? So my late colleague Uwe Reinhart used to say, if people got their paychecks every week or every month, and at the bottom it, he made it realize that one dollar and five is going to health care, then there would be a lot more demand for reform than there is. So most people are quite happy with the status quo because they don't understand how it's undermining. It's as if this was designed by a bunch of demons to make it almost impossible to reform because it is devilishly, cunningly done. You could not have designed something that was so resistant to change. The danger, of course, is this can't go on, right? So eventually, when it's half of GDP, something will happen. And of course, it's not the only sector in the economy where there's a lot of plundering going on. You know this upward redistribution that's going on, and you know it's happening in many industries. And a huge line of work in economics today is, is documenting the increased industrial power, um, not just the big tech, but of many companies, and the loss of wages and so on that comes with that. So healthcare is just perhaps the most extreme example of a system that's plundering relatively poor people to make other people rich. Well, if you go on doing that forever. You know, there's two ways of doing it. Either you reform it, which is what happened in the progressive era in the United States, or you get a civil war of some sort. And, you know, it's part of this very general and very depressing picture, which there seems to be so little opportunity for making things better. And, you know, what Biden is trying to do right now, whatever you think of the details of it, you're actually reversing some of that upward redistribution by trying to give money and something to people with less, edu- less educated Americans. So that would be a really good thing, but it seems that even that is
0: impossible. Are deaths of despair an inevitable consequence of capitalism?
1: No, I don't think so. You know, I don't think it operate this way. You know, capitalism has it, become very unfashionable to say so, but I wrote a book called The Great Escape my last book, you know, which is how capitalism has just really helped bring people out of poverty and destitution. So at it its best, it works great. It's just that it has this tendency to get out of hand. And sometimes we've been able to reform that, often with the help of a world war or two. But I mean, if you read the literature written in the 30s, for instance, where Many people were flirting with communism and they thought, you know, this is really broken. And then you had the Second World War and then you had this, you know, labor government that didn't sort of reform it. And then again, in the U.S. at the end of the Gilded Era, you had four constitutional amendments, all of which were designed to diminish inequality, including prohibition, which was seen as a way of readers reading from men to women. So, you know, these things can't happen. But right now, it looks like reform is incredibly difficult. And you, you can have this very pessimistic view that the only way you get right, or ever get rid of rising inequality like this is through war, destruction, of some so sort.
0: I think a lot about a um, Roosevelt appointee, Leland Olds, who began his career as very far on the left, socialist, even a communist. And because of his work with FDR, saw that reform was possible through regulation, that you were able to make real changes. Right. So we've seen that in the past.
1: But let's not lose the, the power of the market is really there. You know, you don't have to be a right-wing wing wingnut to think that the market can do wonderful things. And, you know, the power of greed is a great motivator. And, you know, it's hauled enormous numbers of people out of poverty. So, you know, I really do believe in that. And you know that I have a strong, strong sort of libertarian streak. That it's a lot of these regulations are, in fact, rent-seeking. So there's a type of regulation which is just you know a run to redistribute upwards. And yeah, it's clear that we've gone much too far in the wrong direction.
0: No, I, I can understand. I'm a big believer in good government, not necessarily always more government. Just kind of depends on what it is that we're trying to accomplish at the time. So well. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great conversation and uh, very impressed with the work that you continue to do. It challenges a lot of the beliefs that we have, but it's impossible to ignore the data that you bring up.
1: Well, thank you very much.
0: If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out.